and it's a doozy. I'm just going to warn you right now. <laughs> Our text for today comes from Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean tur turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among the, these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, servant the branch. See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. So I just wanted to echo a little bit of what Ashley uh, had to say in announcements, and that was just that uh, we do know that this is the time of the year where people consider end of year giving, and in uh, your consideration of end of the year giving, we just ask that you would consider the church. Uh, it comes as no surprise that uh, for churches, December is a pivotal month, and so we just wanted to bring that to your awareness. We do we work hard at the Grace Community to make sure that our um, our expenses are uh, reasonable, and we're uh, uh, allotting money to different places well that we're uh that we're we want to be responsible with the resources that god has given us and so uh as we head into the next couple of weeks uh we just pray that you would uh join us in that endeavor all right all right lead pastor stuff that i have to do every year don't worry about it just just move on past it all right so today is the third sunday of advent the third sunday in this christmas season december 16th and we are covering uh, the, what the prophet Zechariah says to the people of Israel in Zechariah chapter 3. How many of you are familiar with the prophet Zechariah? Just raise a hand. If you had, if I was sitting in the, out there probably five years ago, and you asked me to raise my hand, I would not have been familiar with the prophet Zechariah. And a sneaky thing about the prophet, about these prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament is that uh, there are numerous pastors who are not even familiar <laughs> with what is happening in these books. Uh, the reality is that these books are kind of obscure. They're the ones that we don't often get to in our reading. They're called the minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're a little bit smaller. So today, if you have your Bibles and you want to join with us, you can, you can flip to the prophet Zechariah. It's towards the back of the Old Testament. If you get to Haggai, you've gone too far. It's right before, it's right after Zephaniah. So Ze Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai. So you can do that if you would like. Um, it was probably helpful because what I want to do today is walk through this passage of Scripture, this prophecy that Zechariah gives to the people of Israel. And since next week is our kids' service, I thought I would get the really complicated theological message out of the way, and then, no, I'm joking, and then next week, 
we'll, we'll simplify it. So uh, uh, before we get into what the passage actually says, I think it's important that we set the scene this morning, that you have a little bit of context for what was happening in Zechariah's world when he gives this prophecy, because it really helps to kind of uh, flesh out what, ex- what exactly is happening here. So Zechariah was a prophet speaking to the people of Israel in a very specific time and place, a pivotal time and place. The time was after they had returned to Jerusalem from exile, and the people of Israel had returned back to Jerusalem after being exiled in order to rebuild the temple and the city walls. You see, in the year 597, we know this pretty accurately, King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, destroyed the wall of the city, which provided for the city's safety, and tore down the temple completely, destroyed the temple that Solomon had built, which was a, which was a way of saying, I'm destroying your religious practice. And then he took all of the people, functionally all of the people, definitely all of the people who would be in leadership or have any money or anything like that, and deported them off to Babylon. Uh, this is what he did. It was a really big deal. It was a really bad thing for Israel. And so for roughly 70 years, uh, Israel, Jerusalem, laid just kind of in rubble. But what often happens in the world happened to Babylon, which is that Babylon got uh, destroyed by or, co- or conquered by another nation, which the nation of Persia. And when that regime change occurred, the leaders allowed the people of Israel to go back to their home, back to Jerusalem, to begin this rebuilding process, to begin to reconstruct the walls and rebuild the temple and to try to cobble together for themselves some type of life, right? Because they were a foreign people in a foreign land and the, Babylon- the Babylonians wanted to use them as slaves and as uh, use them in certain roles, but the Persians just wanted them to go back home. So that's what essentially what happened. So th- this story of the Israelites uh, being uh, taken off to Babylon is a, is a really consistent theme that you read about in the Old Testament. It's something that the prophets actually foretold. If uh, Two weeks ago we read from the prophet Isaiah who kind of foretells a little bit about this, uh, what's going to happen if the people of Israel don't turn back to God, that they're going to be taken off to slavery in Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah is the, the weeping prophet, the one who kind of laments uh, the ways in which the people of Israel are going away from God and definitely tells them, if, if you don't turn around, if you don't, if you don't get this thing squared up with God, this is going to happen. You see, uh, God had his hand on, the way the Old Testament talks about it is that God had his hand on Israel, that he protected them. That, that, he was, that he was in some sense a good father who was making sure that this people, this very actually small tribe of people in the midst of a geopolitical situation that had numerous superpowers all around them was kind of protected, was kind of protected. And God had said, as, as long as we maintain this relationship and you do what is right, my hand of protection will be upon you. But if at, if at any point you turn your back on me, I'm going to kind of release my hand of protection. And what's going to happen is not that God will uh, directly judge the nations, but he will allow Israel to just be like every other nation around them. And what happens to every other nation that has ever existed in the history of the world? They've been conquered at some point, right? In one way or another, nations conquer other nations, right? And so this is what God does with Israel. Kind of like, um, like a good parent who uh, allows their, chi- their wayward child to uh, kind of 
do the thing that they want to do that no longer stops enabling, but rather removes their hand of protection from the child. God removes his hand of protection from Israel, and Israel is conquered by the Babylonians and taken off to captivity. But what you need to know is that even in the midst of Israel's uh, being taken off to captivity in Babylon, even in the midst of the city, the city Jerusalem, that had all of this religious, political, uh, and just practical significance for the people of Israel, there was still hope. There was still hope. Jeremiah, that same prophet who told them that if they don't turn around, this thing will happen to them, also says to them in chapter 30 of, uh, of the book of, of Jeremiah, says to them that, that there's going to be a time, roughly 70 years, where you're going to be taken off into slavery, but that they will return, that at some point that they will return and God will allow them to return to the land and that they are going to be about this process of rebuilding the city that they are going to be about the process of kind of cobbling together the rubble that is Jerusalem and remaking a life for themselves. This is what Jeremiah says. And this is what actually ha is going on when we pick up the story of the book of Zechariah. God has allowed the people to return, and now they are attempting to do this monumental thing which is rebuilt the walls of the city so that they can actually have a city because in the ancient world, all cities had walls because people were always attacking you. And the safest way to be a city was to have a city wall. And second, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish their religious life. And in order to do this, God appoints two primary leaders in Israel at this time. The first leader is a guy uh, named Jacob, who's the high priest, who's the priest. And the second person who God appoints as the leader to help in this rebuilding process is a person named Zerubbabel. Can you say Zerubbabel? Excellent. This is good. Uh, there's a lot of Z names in this, uh, in this book. I know we're, we're Zachariah, Zerubbabel. There's all kinds of Z names happening. Um, we haven't landed on a name. Uh, Ashley's pregnant, FYI. We haven't landed on a name for our child. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Uh, but I'm putting Zerubbabel on the list. Just a, I'm putting Zerubbabel on the list. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, the, yes, anyways, you're all whispering and it's throwing me off. So Zerubbabel is the governor that God has established to oversee the building project, right? If Jacob is the spiritual authority and he's kind of overseeing how the temple is to be built, uh, Zerubbabel is the guy in the line or lineage of David, and he's called a governor in this, in, uh, in this story, not a king, because he really wasn't the king at this point. But he is in the line, or is he, he's in the lineage of David. So he's one of these guys who kind of represents the political leader of the city of Israel. Uh, but these leaders, Jacob and Zerubbabel, were aided in this process of building the temple. They needed help actually, by two prophets. The first prophet is a guy named Zechariah, and the second prophet is a guy named Haggai. He's got his own book too, but we're not going to go into that today. And the job of these two prophets was to instruct and encourage the people as they were undergoing this process of rebuilding all of this stuff. They, uh, they were to instruct the people and encourage the people to worship God properly during this time, and they were, and they were uh, there as kind of, you can kind of say, like, Israel's life coaches, in a sense. Have any of you ever had a life coach? Uh, they were there to encourage. I, honestly, I was reading this, and I thought, a better analogy than life coach is that 
Zechariah and Haggai kind of function as Israel's strength and conditioning coaches. Have you ever seen the strength and conditioning coaches on the side of, at a football game? They're usually got like cut off t-shirts. They're the guys, they're the guys who yell at the players on, on a football team. Uh, they, they don't play right? They don't call the plays. They're not the leader, but they are there for motivational speeches and to get everybody hyped um, and to, so that they can go do this really difficult thing. And this is what the prophets do. They, they encourage the people. They, uh, they challenge the people. They try, to, they try to help the people get together and get unified so that they can under, undertake this task of rebuilding the city. So this is what the prophet Zechariah is doing in this book. He's encouraging and challenging the people to stay faithful to God amidst this really difficult process of rebuilding and uh, of rebuilding the temple and reminding them, he's reminding them constantly that faithfulness to, to the God who has been faithful to them is key if they're going to be successful in this rebuilding process. This is what Zechariah is doing. The prophet often reminds them of where they have come from, right? They've just returned from exile and from slavery, so he's reminding them, this is what has happened to us, right? Don't forget this. And then on the, at the same time, he's also pointing forward. He's giving them a vision of their future because without vision, without a picture of what they're actually working towards, they're not going to be motivated to do it, right? So he's always out there giving them a picture of what they're actually working towards as well. This is what the prophet is doing, both reminding and giving vision, both reminding and giving vision. Now, the first chapter of the book of Zechariah, there are a number of pretty weird prophecies. They're just strange. Can I be honest with you? Has anybody ever told you that the Bible is weird? It can be strange from time to time. And part of the reason that these prophecies are strange is because they're received as dreams. Have any of you taken NyQuil lately? Any? Anybody? Uh, whenever I take NyQuil or Tylenol PM or one of those things... I always end up with a horrible dream, it's a, and it's always this kind of repetitive thing that happens all night. Uh, one time I was running on a big ball of yarn, just all night, just running on a big ball of yarn. It was the worst. Uh, another time uh, I was just, I was like holding on, riding a pendulum that was swinging all night long. These are horrible dreams. Uh, I'd rather not sleep than have one of those dreams, so I don't take NyQuil anymore. So in these, what Zechariah is giving here are six interconnected, what, the, what, the, what are called in the text actually night visions, but they're dreams. Uh, he's given this series of six interconnected dreams, and they're all kind of connected in their own way, at least uh, thematically. And they symbol symbolically communicate to the people about the situation that they're currently in. Because sometimes just telling someone something is not as effective as helping them have a, a picture, right? A word picture, a symbolism of what they are actually going through. And uh, it's helping them see what, what the situation they're in, but also, like I said, point forward to what the thing is that they are going to have to do. So you have to remember when you read these passages. And very often when you read a, a book like the prophet Daniel, or you read the book of Revelation, or you read a prophecy like this, that, that very often these prophets are not communicating literal realities. They are using symbolism to communicate larger ideas, all right? So it's an important just tip for reading the Bible. And this is where we hop into the text for today. 
And I want to walk through these, these, this uh, prophecy with you. And what we really need to do to understand it well is to understand three images, three images that the prophet talks about and understand kind of how they function and relate to one another in this prophecy. And then we can kind of glean some insights from them. So that's what I want to do today. I hope it's going to be fun. By the end of this message, regardless of how you feel right now, I promise you, this will be a Christmas message. All right? All right. So the first image we see is that of a courtroom. A courtroom. I love courtroom dramas. Uh, what's the movie with Tom Cruise where, he, where Jack Nicholson yells, you can't handle the truth? I love that movie. Man, alive. I think I just like Aaron Sorkin, but, uh, but I love courtroom dramas. They're always so tense, right? And the person, the, the, the defendant is always such an eloquent and cool person, right? The person defending pers- somebody in a courtroom is never, like, bad at his or her job. But in this, uh, in this first part of this prophecy, we have the picture of a courtroom, of a courtroom. This is what it says. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So in this... (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) This is why I have tea. So in this... Uh, so in this passage, we see the high priest, Joshua, one of the two men who was challenged with going about the process of rebuilding the temple. And in this particular passage, uh, Joshua, the high priest, repre- is representative of the people of Israel. This is what you have to understand. He does not stand in as a, he's a stand-in for the people of Israel. And the reason that we know this is because the high priest was the representative spiritual leader of the people. Every nation, every group of people have a representative leader, correct? When the president goes uh, to have a meeting, he represents America, right? He's the representative leader of the nation. And in the same way, Joshua was the spiritual representative leader of the nation. So when the, so when the prophet says Joshua is standing in this courtroom, it's a way of saying all of Israel is standing in this courtroom. Does this make sense? And uh, the image is of Joshua standing in a courtroom with Satan on his right side and with the Lord, Yahweh, on his left. Now, if you've ever seen a courtroom drama, where does the prosecuting attorney sit? On the right. On the right. And the defending attorney is always on the left of the defendant, correct? And so this is a picture of a courtroom. And the point of this 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 image that we see in this prophecy is that Yahweh is on the side of his people, right? That Yahweh, God, is on the side of his people, and that Satan, which the accuser, the one who accuses, is uh, in this courtroom accusing the people, accusing Israel, accusing Joshua. Uh, But it is at this point that God comes to the the defense of his people. And the way he defends his people is not with a reasoned argument, right? Rather, he rebukes. He rebukes. He rebukes Satan two times, and he says, essentially, I have chosen Joshua. I have chosen the people Israel. And because I have chosen them, I rebuke you. And then the the conversation is kind of done. It's over. The, The courtroom situation has been settled because God's 
word over Israel and his stance in favor of his people is always stronger than the accusation of the enemy. And Zechariah needs the people to see this, doesn't he? He's communicating this to the people, that God has spoken a word of defense and protection over his people that accusation cannot stand against. The word Satan in, uh, in Hebrew actually means accuser, so it's the, the accuser who is accusing, if you were to read that in the original language. And in some way, and in some way in this story also, Jesus is one who both rebukes Satan uh, who's, who is accusing us, uh, but he is also, in some very specific way, one who defends us. You know, have any, are you, any of you familiar with the story of Jesus' temptation in the Gospel of Luke? Jesus actually, in that passage, rebukes Satan. He actually says, Satan, I rebuke you. But Jesus is often depicted as one who stands in our defense, as one who stands in our defense. In 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if, everybody does, uh, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate. We have an advocate, a defense attorney, someone who speaks on our behalf. And Jesus is portrayed in the New Testament as this advocate. Whether the accusation that, you, that is being weighed against you is our own sin or whether that accusation is from our own minds being weighed against us, right? Through self-criticism or self-loathing. Christ is the one who stands as our advocate. The one who rebukes the accusations weighed against us. And so, uh, in the picture we see in this courtroom situation is, is wherever accusation stands against the people of God, the word of God, the rebuke of God is always far stronger always far stronger, to the extent that there is no fight put up in this situation. And the word of God will go forth regardless. If the word of God is a rebuke against the accusation in one's life, that word will always stand. It will always stand, and it will never be defeated. So this courtroom picture is really tied to the next image in in the prophecy that we see. They're actually kind of two sides of the same coin. Because as soon as Satan is rebuked in this dream, something then happens to Joshua, the high priest. And the second image we have to get our heads around in order to understand this is this image of the filthy clothes. Once the rebuke of the Lord is heard against the accuser, Joshua is then given new clothes. This is what we read in verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. We see explicitly stated in this passage that Joshua's filthy clothes are his sin, right? That's stated explicitly. That Joshua, as a stand-in for the people of Israel, has filthy clothes on. The, the, the word filth there in the Hebrew is really, really strong. It, it's, um, it's actually kind of like excrement is the word, that is the connotation of the word. And that God has taken these filthy clothes off of Joshua, off of the people. And the reason he has done this is because they are his people, because he has chosen them, right? 
And notice that this, uh, this, the clean clothes that Joshua uh, receives are not by virtue of the fact that he has done anything to receive this, right? It's simply that he remains God's chosen person or God's chosen people. God has chosen him. Now, this uh, a bit of a theological excursus here. Um, does anybody know what an excursus is? Uh, anyways, uh, there, are diff- there are competing ideas in the church about what this idea of chosenness means. We could read this and think that God actually chooses people, that we have no volition in this, in this process, that God just kind of, by his own sovereign work, reaches out to people and chooses people. But what you need to see here is that Joshua is representative of a people, of Israel, of God's chosen people. You see, God doesn't choose individuals, right, against their own free will, but rather God chooses a people. His plan is to line out for all of creation, a people who would be dedicated to his name. And so when we read chosen here, we have to always read people. We have to always read Israel. Because Joshua is not an individual. He is a representative of God's people. So we should not read this and think that God chooses individuals. Rather, that God has chosen to work his plan through a people. Through a people. And this is what the people, uh, and this uh, and this is what the people of God should look like. This is what he wants them to look like. He wants them to have clean clothes. And they are clean, not because of anything they have done, but because who they belong to, who their advocate is. And the power of the advocate is present to both to rebuke the accusation of the accuser but also to provide for the cleansing of the person who is being acquitted. Does this make sense? So Joshua is standing there and he is given new clothes. He's given new clothes. And the, and the word that we use to describe this kind of new clothes reality in the New Testament and, and in the Old Testament is righteousness. That Joshua has been given a righteousness that is not his own. That he has inherited a righteousness that is not his own. Or he's been given access to a righteousness that belongs to someone else. We read about this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 through 31, we read, God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not you know, Joseph, uh, Joshua, sorry, in this passage looked very lowly, right? He was in filthy clothes. To nullify the things that are, so that, the, so that no one may boast before him. And this is the important part in verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You see, from the perspective of both the Old and New Testament, humans need righteousness that that is not their own. But this righteousness is not simply something God decrees over us. It, it It is alien to us. It is given to us. But it is not simply a decree. It is something we are invited to participate in. You see that in verse 30? It is because uh, that we are in Christ we are in Christ, that we are then invited into this participatory relationship with Christ. This is what Christ does for us. For those who have been united with Christ, who are a part of this people of God, 
his people, we have access to the benefits that he provides, which is a cleansing from sin and holiness and righteousness and wisdom and all of those things. In the language of the prophet, in the image of the prophet in this dream, that looks like clean clothes in the place of filthy rags. It's just an image. It's just a way of explaining this reality in a word picture. But this is just a symbolic way about speaking, right? It's a, but it is a symbolic way of speaking about a true reality. Christ wants to give us access to this kind of life, an access that we cannot have on our own. Now, again, there's something really important about these two ideas being connected. The, the, the idea of Christ being our advocate in the courtroom situation, and then Christ being the one who, uh, that, that makes available to us a cleanliness or makes available to us a life that uh, is in Christ. Because so often when we think about what, what Christ does for us, and I know this is a very theological message, but uh, when we think about what Christ does for us, what we think about is the get-out-of-jail-free card. We think about the courtroom declaration. We think about going to heaven when we die, right? This is the, this is the primary way we think. So one places their faith in Jesus so that they can go to heaven when they die. But that's just... And, that, and we call that righteousness, right? That we've been given the righteousness of God, and now because of Jesus' work on the cross, uh, somebody can go to heaven when they die. But this is just one side of the righteousness coin, if we're understanding this image well. That there's, there, is, there, is a kind of, um, there is a kind of acquittal that, ha that happens in the courtroom setting. We, we don't want to walk away from that image. But the reality is that it's just one side of the coin. Because there's also another side of the coin as well. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is also an invitation to walk in the fullness and, and newness of life that is available in Christ Jesus. Too often we hear the message and we think about just the get-out-of-jail-free card, but it is simply not the full picture of what Scripture talks about. That is only a partial gospel. The image that we see in this passage, this image of clean clothes, is an image of sharing in the very life of God of participating in it, of living life and life to the full. In the Messiah, in Christ, a whole new world has, has begun to explode on the scene. And through our participation in and with Christ, this new world of justice and peace and hope and reconciliation is open to us, is actually open to us. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Christ's righteousness has become our righteousness, but that we get to live into that righteousness via union with Jesus. This was the, the, so that his life, Christ's life, can be our life, right? That his freedom can be our freedom. That his love can be our love. That his resurrection can be our resurrection. And this is the type of thing that is to be shouted from the rooftops. This is the type of thing that is good news. And that idea leads us to the third image we see in this prophecy, the image of the branch. I think we have it up there. The branch. I have in my notes, in parentheses, or a shady place to sit. The final image we see is of a branch 
is of a branch. We read in verse 8, Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the part of the passage where we're actually told what the rest of the passage was all about, actually. Just in case there was anything really confusing, which tends to happen when we read passages like this. The, the, the author, the prophet says, Joshua, you and your friends are symbolic of things that are going to happen in the future. You are symbolic here. You represent something, right? Uh, and what he says is, I'm going to bring a servant, someone called the branch, which is a cool name, I guess. And when he comes, I'm going to remove the sin of the land in a single day, right? So this image that we see of Joshua uh, being acquitted and then having his sin removed is in some way symbolic of something that's going to happen in the future where this branch comes and sin is going to be removed in a single day. Something that... Now what you need to pay attention to here is that in Hebrew, this word branch has a, a range of meaning. I know I'm talking about a lot of Hebrew words today, but it's interesting. Uh, it has a range of meaning, and it doesn't mean branch in terms of the thing that my kids have been taking off of our trees and hitting our new dog with. Uh, it looks far more like a, uh, the word can also be translated shoot, branch, bud, or sprout. So there's this idea in this idea of branch of new life springing up, right? Of new life springing up. It, grow, it, it is the idea of fresh growth, fresh growth. Now, my wife is trying to uh, duplicate a succulent that we have in our house. And in order to do this, she cut it off and just put it in water. And it's on, in water on the windowsill. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's going to kill that thing. Just put it in water. That's not going to do anything. But she said, no, trust me, it's going to be fine. It's going to grow. And uh, over the last week or so, what we've actually seen is fresh growth coming from a stem or a shoot off the bottom part of that plant, right? I don't know what she's going to do with it. Maybe if you're lucky, she'll give it to one of you. Uh, from the bottom of this plant that was, was removed from the other one comes fresh life. And in Psalm uh, 89, we kind of see the same analogy come. Only this branch is described in, the, in Psalm 89 as an offshoot or a sprout or this new life that is coming off the family tree of this King David, of the king who was to come. And so, like I said, it, it can be a little complicated. But the branch is described, if, for, for a Jewish person who's hearing this, they, they would know, they would know this branch, this offshoot, this sprout, is, a, is, a, is, a, is fresh growth kind of like off of David, King David's family tree. Does that make sense? And that this, this fresh growth is going, and this is, this is the one who's going to come as this Messiah, this deliverer, this person who's going to come and heal the land, to, to heal the sin of the land in a single day. And when you, when you hear this, it, when you hear this in the, in the vernacular of the scriptures, it's a pretty amazing thing that, that sin is going to be healed in a single day. In that day, each of, and then he says this amazing phrase after it. In that day, in the day in which sin will be healed in a single day, each of you will invite your neighbors to sit under the vine, the fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. 
It's this picture of people inviting their neighbors to come and sit under the shade of a beautiful tree. And this is a way of speaking in the ancient world because this is, remember, this is in the Middle East where it is sunny, right? Sitting under a vine or a fig tree was a picture of peace or of safety because you needed shade in order to survive, right, in the desert. You needed shade in order to survive. This this one who will come, this Messiah is one who will bring peace, who will bring shade, who will bring, who will bring safety, who will be in the line of David, will be a branch, will be a, a fresh branch off this tree of this family tree of David, and he will bring peace, safety, comfort, provision, peace. And what do we read? I told you this was going to be a Christmas message. Just wait for me here. And what do we read in Luke chapter 2? But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. For who? All people. All people. Today, in the town of who? David. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. The Lord. Today, in the city of David, the descendant of David, the branch, has been born. You could just as easily read that and put that in there. And he is going to usher in a peace that is for all people. For all people. And the picture of what the Messiah does, the picture of who the Messiah is, the, the idea that comes about in Zechariah's prophecy is that the Messiah, sitting under the Messiah, the, the type of peace that the Messiah is going to bring is going to feel like sitting under the shade of a tree on a, on a hot, sunny day. And I love these pictures. I love these pictures in the scriptures. Because too often we do what I just did in this message, which is make things far too theological and complicated right? And very often we are given, we're given these beautiful images of what the Messiah is, who Jesus is, and what he has come to do. And the truth of the matter is that when we get down to brass tacks, the way in which you understand righteousness in a theological sense is not important. What's important is that you experience the reality of Jesus as a shady place to sit when your life gets too hot right? The truth is, is that you experience Jesus, the Messiah, as one who takes your filth and replaces it with new, white, gleaming clothing that allows you to live into this beautiful reality that he's calling you to. The truth that you need to, the truth that you need to find is that this one, this branch, this Messiah, this Jesus is one who uh, rebukes the accusation that stands over your life that you feel, whether it be from your family or from your own internal monologue, whether it, be, whether it be an accusation of your actual sin, something you have actually done, the Messiah is one who rebukes that accusation and in a real and true way brings you freedom. These are the, these are the pictures that we are called to associate with the person of Jesus. And this is the life that we're invited into as we follow this Lord. So I don't know where we're at this morning. I don't know where each of you are at. I have a feeling that there's one of these images, one of these pictures that you need to experience, that you came into this place needing to hear this morning, that maybe it is, you are in this place and you need to hear, and that you are, you're hearing the voice of accusation. You're hearing the voice of accusation and what you need to be uh, reacquainted with is the reality of the voice of one who is your defendant, right? Of one 
who stands with you and rebukes that voice. Maybe you're in this place and you feel your own brokenness and your own sin in a very acute way. And this morning you, you, you are in desperate need to reacquaint yourself with a, with a Jesus who wants to forgive your sins and exchange your dirty clothes for clean ones. Or maybe, like I said, you're in this place this morning and you are in need of peace and security. You are in need of a comfortable place to sit. You're in need of a comfortable place to sit. And the beautiful thing about the end of this passage is that it has that picture of uh, go and tell your neighbors and invite them to sit under this tree with you, right? To sit under the shade of this Messiah, this branch with you. And I think it's a beautiful way to talk about the way in which people are to be invited into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, I think that at times we can, uh, Christians have gotten a bad rap about the way we do this, about the way that we invite other people who might not know this Jesus into, uh, into a relationship with him. But when's the last time we thought about uh, extending the message or truth of Jesus just within the confines of just going to your neighbor and inviting them to shit, sit, whoa, to sit? <laughs> well, that'll really kill the mood, won't it? Uh, to sit under a shady tree with you. <laughs> sit. We're in dangerous territory. <laughs> All right, let's pray everybody go home. Uh, <laughs> no. When's the last time we thought about it that way? Really, really. When's the last time we thought about it like that? That the invitation of God and the invitation that it, we are to extend to our neighbors, to our friends, to people who may, may or may not know God, may or may not know Jesus the Messiah, is that you are invited to sit under the shade, the peace and security of this tree. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful way of communicating this message. And if you're in this place this morning and you don't know Jesus that way, I just want to extend that invitation to you. That the, that the truth is, is that this Savior, this Messiah, this branch is available. And he wants to invite you in, under his shade, under his protection, under this tree, and give you a respite from the sun. So if you're in this place this morning, that is available to you. You can accept it right where you are. And if you want to do that, please come talk to me after church because I'd love to have a conversation with you. All right? All right. And for the rest of you this morning, for the rest of you, whatever it is, wherever you're at, whatever you need the Messiah to be for you this Christmas season, I pray that he would be that for you and that you would uh, look to this prophecy and look to this reality of who the Messiah is and that you would, you would hang tight to that and you would allow the person of Jesus, to reveal himself to you in that way. That's my prayer today. So let's pray for that end, shall we? Father, we love you. And we ask that as we go from this place today, that you would be a God who reveals yourself to us, that we would see that you are a God who stands in our defense, who is our advocate, who rebukes the word of accusation over our life. I pray right now for those in this place who feel the word of accusation, who feel the accusation of their own minds or of their own actions or of the enemy over their lives, God. Would they know Jesus the Messiah is one who rebukes that accusation? Father, I pray for those of us who feel our sin and own brokenness acutely. God, I pray that the Messiah would be one who, who uh, gives them clean clothes today and this week, God, that they would feel and know the reality that they have access to a way of life that is clean and pure. And thirdly, 
for those of us who need a little shade, who need a little respite today, God. Would you be one who gives us peace, security, comfort under the shade of the Messiah today in this Christmas season? God, would you be with us as we go? And may we be your people as we do it. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.